Welcome to the Adoption Journey Podcast. I am your host, Tarsha Smith, and I am so honored and so excited to have yet another fellow adoptee tell her story, and her name is Sarai Baker. Hey, Sarai. So I saw you on Instagram, and believe it or not, I read your post as I was going to bed. And I said, I think I'm going to reach out to her tomorrow. And then you reached out. <laughs> I said, oh, well, look at that. Because I was thinking about it. And I am so glad that you did. Because while I know that you gave like a little synopsis on Instagram, I am looking forward to hearing this story. So go ahead and let the people know who you are. Um, I was born in Shanghai, China, um, and I, I think I'm, I'm just honestly excited initially to be, to be able to talk about my story because I feel like I've grown up a lot with people telling me my story, and so to finally be able to say, well, what, what's my story? How do I see that story? Ooh. And so now that I get the chance to share it with others and to be able to heal in that process, I'm really, I'm really excited to be able to talk about it. Well, that's so, what we do here. Yeah, <laughs> I'm really excited. So my journey or my story begins in Shanghai, China. I was born in the early 90s. So um, in China, there was the one-child policy. Um, so in that case, a lot of um, families wanted boys. And that's just because traditionally when you're a son, you carry the name, you take care of your parents. Whether And then if you're a daughter, you get married and then you take care of your spouse's parents and not your parents. So that's okay. kind of the traditional reason why a lot of people want a son versus a daughter. So I was abandoned in a park when I was about a month old. Kind of the police kind of guessed my age by looking at me going, hmm, today is October 17th, September 16th. Okay, wait a minute. <laughs> so somebody just put you in a carrier, took you to a park. And left. We well the night the, the the crazy thing about China is I I don't know there was no note there's no information I they just found a baby at a park and took it to the uh, closest authorities and they took me to the orphanage that was closest to the area. Um, okay. I spent the first three years of my life there, um, and so I have no memory of that. So that's something that I feel like is a blessing that I don't know what happened in that time. Yeah. There. It's something that um, I, I was part of. Um, and then my adopted family, um, they were, my father was actually working for Honda at the time in Shanghai. And that's what brought him over to China. And okay. by this time, my parents had four older sons. They're all biological children of theirs. And so uh, my mom had to deal with a lot of that. And then she was also pregnant with my younger sister at the time as well. And so in her free time, while uh, my brothers went to school, she actually had a friend uh, recommend helping and volunteering at the orphanage that I was at. And that's how she met me. Um, and they were able to actually foster, uh, parent me while a little bit while um, they were there initially, just because in China as well, they didn't have those kind of rules like foster parenting in America where, you know, there's a system and things are happening. They were like, oh, you want to foster this kid? Okay. Stay the kid. Okay. We don't have to worry about that. Okay. Yeah. Um, then when they frosted me, you know, they kind of you know, fell in love with me. And um, from there, they wanted to adopt me. And um, 
So that process was very crazy as well because by the time they were working on their adoption, um, uh, some humanitarian people had actually finished writing a book about the orphanage I was at. Um, the book is called um, Death by Default. And it's um, a story about one of the doctors that was there at the orphanage. And it talked about the cruel things that happened in the orphanage. There were children who um, were molested, children that were starved, some of the horrible like, treatment that they had for those children. Um, there's an incinerator that was like built right next to the orphanage that I lived in. So it was a very uh, not positive look. And so the Chinese government decided to, the way that they could best deal with that, was that instead of allowing you to choose what kind of kid you wanted, they, they would assign it for you. And my parents okay. were already in the process of adopting me, so they didn't want that. They wanted to keep on with that process. So right. my, my dad did whatever it took to, to allow myself to get adopted into the family. So by the time I was almost four, I was officially adopted by my family and sent to the U.S. Okay, so you came to the U.S. at four years old. Yes. Are you starting to remember anything at no, this but, point? Uh, I'm now, like I said, the, big, uh, the biggest part for me is being able to finally start putting the pieces together, actually. Mm, okay. I actually recently inquired my father about his side of the story, because I've always been told the story by my mother, and so you have okay. the, her version. And so with my dad's version, you're able to, some pieces got put together, and then, of course, I started reaching out to other people who were Chinese and saying, hey, what does this mean in, in what are these... Um, what does this mean in Chinese? Is this the location still existing? So I did some of my own research as well to put some of those pieces together. Um, okay. I think it's still, even today, there's still a lot of things I want answered that it's going to be difficult just because it is. Yeah. And, um, so what I'm, did, so if you want to tell from your dad's point, we'll start yeah. there. What did, what did yeah, you Yeah, so my dad's end, the biggest part for him is we had a, they had a family friend that was actually there with, in China a year prior to they, when they were there. And they had adopted a Chinese girl. Um, I think I posted about this on Instagram, but they had posted, they had uh, gotten a girl there. And she had um, a cleft palate that they fixed. But then she also had um, been sucking on the cribs that they had there. And those cribs, uh, the paint was like lead paint. And so if kids sucked on them, it would... Um, uh, give them retardation and so uh, with that you know it was a struggle my dad was really uncomfortable with that first because like I don't know if I can take care of a kid who has you know those medical situations and, and right. how am I supposed to do that and then, and then in his end he finally came to a point where he told me um, like, I had to think for myself that you know I would rather give this kid a their best life ever, you know, because that's what I will be able to do. I adopt this child, I'll give them everything they can get, even if I have, they have to live with me for the rest of their lives, like, at least I do that. And mm -hmm. so, um, so that's kind of what helped him move forward to adopting me. But also, I think, uh, feeds into that the ideology of the savior, saviorism complex that some, I think, adoptive parents can have. And I don't think they, I don't think all parents do that purposely, but I know that I feel like some parents do. They have the idea that I can get a saved kid and this is the best thing. And I'm so excited to show them what their life will be now because I saved them. And so that's, yeah. that's something that I, I started realizing too, as well as, as trying to understand that savior is a savior's complex, especially throughout the rest of my my, my, bring, my um, childhood and being brought up in, in not only um, 
you know, their traditions, but in the traditions of Mormonism, which I also kind of shared a little bit about. Yeah, I'm going to ask you that. Hold on. We're going to get there. Hold on. Don't jump there yet. Hold on. I want to hear what your mother would tell you when she spoke oh, about yeah. it. So my mother, um, she would, of course, tell her story was that the first time she met me in your orphanage, she saw that there was light in my eyes. And so she's like, I just knew you were you know, the one I wanted. Um, and she also, I mean, she, my mother is also an author too. So she's written books. And um, I mean, in her book, she talks about um, a little section about me where it's just the idea that she always wanted a best friend. Like her mom was her best friend. Her grandmother was her best friend. And she wanted a daughter to be her best friend and be girly and have, you know, have this connection with her. And so she also had that desire as well. And it just happened that she was pregnant with my sister and in the process wanting to adopt me because she got you know two daughters um, two girls and so of course it's the whole you know your, your birth parents loved you so much that you know they found a great place to abandon you with they knew you'd be found and you know they, they so, took care of you for months so, you know it's a nice story i think where so your parents yeah. are your best and now it's come to us now we are your, we're your parents and you know we'll love so, you and don't treat you differently from the other okay because i was i was gonna ask that because you grew up, I assume, knowing you're adopted, knowing, yep. right, because you don't look like anybody, first oh, yeah. and foremost, right. Mm -hmm. And um, you just touched on that, like you weren't treated any differently or were you? Well, I, I think in a sense, I mean, part of it is six kids. I mean, you've got to figure out how to manage the amount of children when you have that. I think also it, it's just, um, you know, the idea of just loving you. If I love you just the way I love all the other kids, you know, you'll feel like you're part of the family. You won't have to question, make those questions of why am I different because you won't feel different if we treat you the same. But um, how did you I feel? I, I, I think I honestly, at a very young age, I actually questioned, well, I think I should be treated differently. I feel different. Like, I feel that when, you know, I was in trouble or when I, you know, ask for attention that the way that, you know, that gets um, the reactions for that weren't as helpful because it, it kind of confused me then when I was like, well, I'm not trying to be an attention seeker. I just want some attention. I don't know why, mm -hmm. but I feel like I need this. Or for myself, um, a lot of times when uh, children are adopted, um, after about the age of three around there, um, kids can sometimes suffer from through attachment disorder. So you're either that mm -hmm. kid who's always you know, latched onto your, your parents or your parent or you're the child who attaches to everyone but your parents and that was the kind of kid I was I tried to get attention for everyone else but my parents and what I want from them so I'll go outward okay and now tell me a little bit about how you were raised yeah um so and now you can get into that that Mormon thing yeah let's go there yeah so my my mother's parents were converts to the Mormon church. My dad converted when I think he was early 20s, he was converted. He served a mission for the church. They met um, in a singles ward where they fell in love and you know, they got married. And uh, so we were raised in that, um, that idea. And so Mormonism, um, I guess the, the, the practice for them is, you know, they're very big on family. And yes. the thing that I think separates them from a lot of other Christian churches is they believe that your families will be connected forever. So once you die, you are going to go to heaven and you'll be with your family. And there's all these other things, but the principle is you want to go back to your family. You want to be together. And so you have to follow the rules. You have to do certain 
um, actions to do that, be baptized, you know, get married in the temple to your other partner and then have kids, right? So it's a very almost kind of black and white kind of way of dealing with, with life. And it, it makes sense almost, I think, if you, you know, go, okay, as long as follow the rules, I'll be happy. Um, and so I think being in that kind of mindset and adopted was an extra burden for me because not only am I having to be this perfect daughter for my parents because I fear I'm going to get abandoned if I do something wrong, I also mm-hmm. have to be perfect for my church because if I do something wrong, I, I could go to hell. And so it was really, um, it really clashed in a lot of ways for myself, just trying to keep up with that. You know, I'm the happy person. I don't quite have you know, feelings or if I feel confused on something, I don't want to stop why I feel confused to stay within the program. And on top of that, when I was about 14, I came to the reality that I was getting And then that was another thing that kind of did the, the feel of how much can I live my life the way that I want to live versus how much should I live my life so that I can be used to vote. I think in one of the projects you see more about people pleasing, right? The idea that you you want people to be real, kind of do what other people want to do that so you don't feel that uncomfortable. Yeah. So it was a lot of having that. And um, Now, in all of that, in you talking, I did not hear anything about um, them incorporating your culture. No. So when I, and I even asked them that when I got older and they had advised that. And, and I think this happens a lot with, the parents, I, I, I don't know if it's because it's the whole, as long as I love you, you're not going to worry about it. But the, the inquiry, and the, the part on their end was that I didn't ask. I didn't say, hey, I want to learn my culture. So therefore, it was on me that I didn't talk about it. Or if, if you did want to do something Chinese, we did do something. Maybe I'll teach you one recipe or I'll, I'll let you know what, you know, oh, Chinese New Year's here, I'll give you a red envelope. But it wasn't enough to be like, this is why you need to be proud to be Chinese. It was more of, you're an American and you're very, I was very Americanized. And so I think like with all the people, you, especially growing up, what, you know, in a white environment and having the ideology that too in the Mormon church that the white and the life like some ideology of you know, white is good and so kind of live in that by the time you try to involve yourself with you know your Chinese you know heritage you're almost shunned on that end too because then we're like oh you don't know Chinese that's really odd and you're like did, and no did you go to me. school with a lot of other Chinese people or, or um, did you so interact or, or very any? little but I think okay. again my parents and I think I talked about initially too my parents kind of taught me almost very quickly how evil in a sense China was and the things that they had done and so it gives you a sense of why would I support a country that abandoned me right why would I be part of a country where you do things to women if they have their second child or if someone's on the street bleeding death and you don't help them or these very negative narratives and then of course when I got older I read death by default and it does give you that warped idea that oh my god like there's nothing good about my culture. Why do I want that? Why do I want to think about communism? Why, why do I want to feel like I'm attached to that? Um, but it wasn't until COVID and when the Asian hate and when the stop Asian hate movement happened, where I had to kind of jolt myself back and go, I am Asian though. Like, that's... did you experience any of that? Any? Just a, um, I did some. I did some, but I think initially, like I said it's just so 
hard, especially when you're protected, most typically you're protected because you're involved with Mormonism, so you're part of a community that just protects you, you're part of a, you know, part of the, the white community, you're kind of protecting that, so you don't have that concern because you know, people will defend you, but you yourself are internally having to struggle with that, but there's no one else to give you that support, go, hey, we're here to protect you. I'm like, but from what? I don't know. I just don't know why they would say that because I'm American. I grew up here, so I, I couldn't have done, you know, these things. So mm -hmm. it was a really difficult time as well. And then, of course, when I was 21, I decided to serve a mission for the Mormon Church as well. And I got called Mandarin Chinese speaking, and I was so mortified because, again, so why would I want to teach people who do these horrible things? And so... I found myself having to end my mission early because I could not deal with, with with that interaction. And of course, my faith was breaking at that time too. About you know how do I you know what does it mean to be Soraya? What does it mean to be myself? I don't know. I don't know my identity. And it wasn't until I think three years ago I started figuring out that I need to know who I am outside of all this. I need to finally give myself the, the chance and opportunity to be able to say. I'm Chinese. I'm adopted. I'm gay. I I don't believe these Mormon teachings anymore. Like I need to be able to accept that and do something with that instead of okay. I, I so I have another question because yeah. uh, it seems like in this is just me asking. Okay. Um, I'm just playing devil's advocate here. So in the Mormon Church, being that just how you're describing it, mm -hmm. did you struggle there as well, like being accepted, or were you just automatically accepted because of the family that you were? I think in? I was automatically accepted because I mean, too, when I was, I mean, when you're younger, you learn, I think, very quickly um, roles and things. So, for example, when I moved to Indiana after, so I lived in Massachusetts for two years. Mm -hmm. And then my dad got called as a state president. Um, a state president is kind of like he's in charge of like multiple different counties of a section of the church. So there are branches or wards, which is like a section of a town. And then it gets bigger as a stake. And, and then so he, he became that. And so you become kind of the oh, you're the daughter of this leader. Therefore, you're okay. popular. So I think you get really integrated into it. Of course, me being the people leader, me being happy go lucky kid i'm i know that i can easily keep myself safe in that right no one's going to question my my, my insecurities or, or my traumas because i'm doing what's right instead of right oh my goodness just the turmoil i'm okay. hearing right okay so when do you turn the corner and say okay i gotta strip myself down and build myself back up because i need to know who i am what does that look like? Yeah. Um, I would say that it, it's it's a process, and I think it's a lifetime process, and something that I think happened very uh, very slowly in bits and pieces. Um, and I think part of that has to do with my mental health, most definitely being able to question like why am I feeling disconnected? Why don't I feel? Why can't you know? Why am I not grateful? Why can't I feel you know happy when I you know? I think associate with Asian people, why do I feel this anger? Why do I feel like, you know, why can't I cry? Why why am I not allowed to do that? Why am I not allowed to ask about what are what does it mean to be gay? Why can't I ask why am I limited to all this stuff? And so I think it, it finally tore me down. Uh the first time I think it happened is in high school where I was 
very suicidal and I, I was depressed and I'd sleep my pain away and I'd do other things to deal with the emotional pain of it to the point where I finally came to my parents after we had a, a, a fight at a restaurant where my parents were trying to tell me to be happy and I was like, oh, I'm tired of being happy. I, I just not, I, I want to be sad. Like I want to be sad. I want to feel these feelings. And, and, and it came to the point where I, I came to them and said, I, I either get help or I, I kill myself. So you make that determination on me. And, and what so did they say to that? They um, they decided to get me help reluctantly. Uh, they were quite embarrassed as they told me that they had to do that. Um, so that was kind of sad. But I think it's just because they didn't understand, they didn't understand why it was such a struggle for me. And it, it wasn't to understand that it wasn't about them. Well, yeah, it wasn't about them. It was about me and my feelings. And yeah, it's hard. I think because you know parents. I think. You know, there's and the, one of the first things I learned in therapy was about listening and versus hearing. Like you're going to hear your kids say a lot of things, but if you're not going to listen to them. You know, that's going to mm-hmm. be the best way to struggle with. And, and that was where I was finally able to break down the stop this masking of just being the happy and start being able to cry when you want to cry, be angry when you want to be angry. You know, okay, so I have a question though, and I forgot about this aspect. So you're going through this because I'm more focused on your parents, but what about your siblings? Um, are they understanding what's happening here? Or are they just kind of? No, um, I think it's because we're all, much, and I think I said part of it has to do with being a family of six. I think I think we all had our different struggles, and so we're gotcha. all I think, asking for help. But you know, first, are you know, my parents going to balance that out? And so, which kid? What can I do for what kid? And so, I think I was blind a lot to what was happening in their lives because okay, you're, you're stuck with yourself and. I, I don't know, it, it's kind of hard. And we, I think, as we're older, too, we kind of associate that. We didn't know how much um, everyone was struggling in their own ways because of how mm. we were raised. How because we everyone just showed up and let me be the person that our parents yeah. want us to be. Well, yeah, uh, and the way I like to tell people, it's like it's the three pillars of our family was, you know, definitely spirituality, you know, mm-hmm. God and Mormonism, you know, health, being thin and, and healthy and then of course it was um education you know making sure that you go to the good schools and you get that kind of stuff so you're trying to keep that going and so depending on how you're doing as a sibling or a member like we're that just made me tired thinking about that but okay (laughs) (laughs) how am i going to be successful to them but also for myself and for me, for a very long time, I never had, I never needed to do that because I didn't care about myself enough. I didn't care what happened to me because I was doing what was right. I was doing the right thing. I was making sure that I made the good choices so that I could be the good daughter, right? Right. So now I want to ask the question, at what point do you let your parents know that you are gay? Um. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, that sounds like a fun a, conversation. <laughs> Um, I, I mean, I definitely, I, I definitely had a whirlwind. I remember in high school, I told my mother I was lesbian when I figured that out because um, I had a best friend who was gay and that kind of helped me kind of initially come out. And it was, it was one of the worst experiences ever because it was about, oh, okay, well, if you're a lesbian, then I'm not going to support you with college. I'm not going to do these things. You're like, oh, well, so there are consequences for being gay. Uh, okay. And I'm like, I guess I'm not gay, you know, because of that. Well, are you having sex with them? And I'm like, I'm no, I'm not. Then you're not gay. You have same-sex attraction, which is a very big terminology in Mormonism. It's the same-sex attraction. You're not gay. And uh-huh. that, 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 I think, scared you me. You just taught me something. I didn't know that that's how it was viewed. 
Yeah. Okay. So, um, and then of course, uh, that was the end of it. And then in college, I kind of got taught about, you know, I, I joined a, a, a group of college students who were supporting gay rights and stuff. And so like, I learned when pansexual. So I told my parents, Oh, I'm, I'm pansexual. That seems much more easier to deal with where it's just like, you like people because of their personalities. I just like them because they're like, that's great. Um, and then of course, while I was questioning my faith, you know, I, I started dating women. I started, you know, you know I, I guess doing a double life. I, I double life myself because I wanted to at least figure out if, if, if this was something that I, you know, I connected with. And so, of course, finally, after oh, a while, my dad, I think he kind of found out much faster than my mother. And he was okay. He actually left it as one part of his reasons for leaving the Mormon church. Um, couple of years about five years ago he left the church for that to support my brother and myself um and then my mother kind of was forced to be told and shown when i brought my my girlfriend on uh on one of our um i think her book opening that she had and she was there and then she was there when i graduated and so when i kind of figured out oh she's I'm like yep yeah. oh, okay so did your mom also leave the church? No, she is a devout Mormon. So she and probably two of my other my siblings are still members of the church. The rest of us have left. Have left. Okay. All right. So back to Soraya. And now she is on her healing journey. And tell me, speak to your um, therapy. At least, of course, you don't have yeah, to get into so details, I, but yeah, I, some people are on the fence about going to therapy. Does it work? What does mm-hmm. it like? Speak well, to that. I think it's a, I think it's a process, and I and I tell people to go to therapy, even even if, even if you don't think you have an issue. I think therapy is a wonderful way to be able to understand yourself or take that step to go. Am I? Do I feel good where I'm at? Um, so I think my initial you know, therapy is about you know letting go of that perfectionism, that big situation that I have, mm. um, and then also having to accept certain traumas in my life that I didn't understand. Again, it's I think part of you know. Being Mormon and being part of, you know, family is that um, when I was nine, I was sexually assaulted by a family member, and so having that and being able to know what that means and going, oh, I don't know if, if I ever thought of it that way. I just knew it was something that happened. My parents asked me if I needed therapy for that, and I said, well, I'm nine, and I don't know why. I'm sorry. Can you stop right there? Yeah. Your parents asked a nine-year-old girl that had just endured what she endured if she needed therapy for that and let yeah. you make the decision? Yeah, another reason where it's like, why are you asking me if I need it? You <laughs> do it. <laughs> right? You're asking yeah, a nine-year-old. Yeah. Okay. So you never got me. therapy for any of that. No, it I just kind of happened and, all right, you don't need therapy? Okay, we're going to keep so yeah, they have those. So I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. So you had to ask to learn your heritage, and you're supposed to ask for therapy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, yeah, <laughs> it, 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 and then like I said, it's crazy because I mean, you know, especially when you're I think like to adopt again, you don't think you have the right to ask. Right? I didn't think I had the right. It's like, oh, well, if I. If I you know, if I say yes, I do. Is it going to make them mad? Well, mad tell me why you why you thought you didn't have the right to ask. Well, because you know, again, I think part of that great, you know, you're grateful. You're you're supposed to be grateful for where they're at. You're in a good place. I mean, mm. I, I think similar to another girl that you talked to, like you know, we traveled the world. I went to France for high school. I my family like took us on cool vacations. Like 
in I went to you know amazing schools for college. You know I had my math. You know it's like these these status ideologies where it's like on the on the status level I was living it up. Like I would see my someone who, as my mother likes to tell people, you wouldn't know that she was adopted if you had seen her life. Like she was so on top of the world. Now, okay, hold on. I have to address that statement. Um, Because to me, that sounds like if you're adopted, that means that you don't have a good life. But I and and just speaking from what it sounds like your mom was saying, like her ideology about an adopted person, they don't have good lives. But our child, our adopted child, like you wouldn't have even known. She lived a good life. I mean, look at her. Yes, she lived a good life. She has a bachelor's degree. Isn't that amazing? I mean, it's funny. I mean, I get a lot of times where my parents come to me and tell me, like, hey, we didn't think you would actually, you know, get a degree, or we didn't think you'd have to be able to drive. Just so those kind of ideologies of, oh, you were, because of what you're, where you were in your beginnings, you know, whether it was the physical therapy side, whether it was my eyesight, whether, you know, it was malnourishment. I mean, being able to, you know, gain that weight. You know, like those, those little things where it's just like, but I did because I thought I had to. So there's a difference between like, oh no, I just did it because you, you, it was you who did all this. For you. And they did. I give them credit for giving me the, those tools and you know the kind of environment it was to be able to go to physical therapies, to be able to go to good schools. But again, mm-hmm. I think similar to a lot of adoptees, it's the emotional part that gets I think forgotten a lot. And realizing that if you're going to adopt a child, you have to realize that they need something more than just a standard upbringing and just. I'll give you what everyone else gets, and hopefully it's still and I, I, I always say that I believe that adoptive parents need to have some kind of class, some kind of training, some kind of something mm-hmm. more than a social worker talking to them or whomever they're, um, you know, telling them mm-hmm. their thoughts. Like, because it's a whole thing. Because mm-hmm. I, and I also think some sometimes they're like, oh, we're getting this baby. Okay, but what about the child? What about the teenager? Mm-hmm. What about the adult? Some adoptive parents don't think that all the way through. They're just like, oh, look at the baby or look at the, you know, the little toddler. And they don't think about everything else. <laughs> I know. And I think it's interesting, too, because in some cases, I mean, even in the beginning, I had a few times where, you know, it's so funny in the way that my mom was writing one of her books. This book was written more about the parents who want to go back in the field of work, but she had a section with me where it's like, oh, my mother, she told us not to adopt right and, and it was understandable you have four boys like why would you want another kid but my mom's like we didn't care we just did it right you know some people say oh of course you know you just love that kid but if you're going to love that kid you better do you know the responsibilities for that kid yeah and actually, you know and actually oh my gosh okay so um on your healing journey mm-hmm. and i know that therapy is, is good for you. Um, what is the next, is there any way at all, do you think, because I know some people have a reunification journey or any, being that you are from a, another country, mm-hmm. is there any way for you to connect with birth family or have you? I appreciate it. Um, so I'm fun fact, I guess, in, in, in general, like I never wanted it initially again. I think just growing up, with my family, right, my forever family, you know, I was like, why would I want to, or even one time I see my mom, and she's like, I just said, like, we'll be dead. that's the only way that it's going to be fine, and I'll be, I don't have to deal with it, I look for them, um, but then I think I finally decided to do a 23andMe, 
And um, mm-hmm. when I did that, I found a possible second cousin. I'm very, most likely he's my second cousin on my dad's side. And so I got to connect with him. And that was something that was really eye-opening to have that kind of connection. I'm not currently in contact with him now, but just that initial um, association was, was that drive. And then was I, he in the states, or was he still over in in China? China, I think he's still over in China. Yeah. Okay. So and then so that was kind of you know, and I think that's what's so hard is especially when you're being internationally, you know. And I think my my partner's is the best. It's like that I can't have those certain expectations that I think other people have, where it's like, oh, I'm just expecting now that I connected with him, he'll tell me everything, we'll be best friends, we'll you know, you know, fly into the sunset. That's not an expectation, yeah. even with with those of us that were adopted right here, um, I can speak to that. Yeah. I've found my maternal side and I, they've told me, I guess they've told me what they know, but to me, I'm like, either I'm still asking questions because I feel like there's still more to my story or I don't know. And on the flip side, now I'm getting ready to embark on finding my paternal side who knows? I, I'm going to take all of you on that journey with me because I actually talked about it um, on IG the other day with the, I took an ancestry DNA test. Mm-hmm. So no matter where you are, you can connect with people. Okay. And still not get that relationship. But I think it's, I think it's been a nice awakening. And one thing that really I think again blew me out of the water and kind of is the reason why I'm where I'm at, why I added, created this Instagram, why I created my YouTube channel is because I went to San Francisco with my sister to visit with my brothers and I was there and just looking at all, all these you know, Chinese people and you know, thinking, what are these people my mom and dad being? But also just that feeling of, this is where I belong. These are my people. Like, this is something that's important to me. Mm. And so when I came home, I like, my partner I was like we're gonna do this we're gonna look for them we're gonna find them. we're gonna do whatever we can to, to bring awareness to this we're gonna I'm gonna start telling my story because I deserve to feel like I should I know that I am who I am and that we're gonna know who I am outside of what my parents' stories are what you know other people have told me my story is I wanna know right out and be able to share that well in the you know the truest honest way um because it gives me that drive too find my birth family in some way and that's something that I wish to my parents I even asked my parents to do was that you know I, I want to be on this journey and I know it's hard and difficult and I love your support I love your financial support possibly to be able to do that and um, my, both my parents have not done that for me so I so some so I think you know it says a lot in that end but I had other people who, who decided to take that time to help me who so do your parents think that this is something that you should not be doing Um, well my father has kind of expressed of course the concerns that you know it could be a scam people could lie like oh but also it's it's china and of course i think in the 90s and just in their history there was a time where they didn't keep their history completely you know set or if people did have kids outside of the one child policy they were afraid that they'd get in trouble. So if even if you did find them and say, "Hey, my parents," they could they could say no and say, "I'm not your parent." Gotcha. I tell you that. So there is that. You know, of course, I think like any parent that that concern of you could you know I just point it. Um, I think that's I I've worked hard emotionally and, and mentally and 
healed my, I'm healing myself on, on my many journeys that are all somehow interconnected to allow myself to go, I understand you, I hear you, but I'm going to do this. So, right. Um, so, so are you feeling now that you have started this journey and on this healing, how are you feeling about yourself and your heritage? Like, are you more accepting of that now? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I definitely would say I, I am. And like, so I connecting, I mean, one thing that um, I, I told my partner too, when I moved to Portland, Oregon, the first thing I told her is like, I want to make friends with adoptees. I, I've grown up in my all my life, you know, I've grown up moving to different states or countries where you're automatically put into a group. If you're Mormon, you're automatically in your group. Your group. That's what it is. I didn't choose my groups because I'm just thrown into one. And so to finally have the choice to say, I want to actually associate with adoptees, I want to associate with you know people who are Asian. I want to understand what I missed because I wasn't given that opportunity. I wasn't able to mm. know another adoptee, and so being able to have that and being able to finally find real friends who can who, you know aren't adopted but can say I can understand your your story and I will go with you on this journey has allowed me to uh, I think really find myself not only about you know being Chinese and learning the language and the culture but also just I was just going to ask you about learning the language and the yeah yeah I think and I mean I, I think that adds so much to it but then again it's um something that I really appreciate is is how it helps me connect with other abilities. I think initially you know you start with your Asian abilities and like focus and then just start expanding and then the appreciation itself um, I think one of the Instagram groups was like the BIPOC adoptees, and I never thought mm-hmm. about those other um, areas. I'm like, well, I'm going to be open minded to that because those are adoptees too. And and my brother has, you know, two adoptees that they have as well. And so, kind oh, of, really? Yeah. So, so they were through a full foster system as well. So you kind of start realizing that your story, in a way, is integrated with everyone else's story in that realm that you all share. This this journey of pain and sadness, but also of healing, and to be able to I think, have these conversations and to be able to share these stories does that for people, and I think that's what drives me and allows me to still have that time and energy to go. I can heal myself. I can share my story and talk to other people while also being able to give myself that that opportunity. And I think you know, I think the real, the real word is that that choice to say I have that choice to be able to them you know i want to even if it right. means that's gonna be years um and technology has to be the thing to help me find that you know it's something that i can do and but not feel alone this time doing it. and doing this is so therapeutic yeah listening to these stories talking about it having different conversations seeing other perspectives it is so therapeutic and i just that's one of the reasons why i do this podcast is because I know people are listening and they have questions and they're afraid to, some people are afraid to talk to anybody about it. Some people are embarrassed about it, but you know, this is a safe place and people, you know, we come and share our stories. All of us have a story yeah, and they all look different, but we're still, like you just said, we're still intertwined. Like we are our own club, like for sure. (laughs) (laughs) For sure. Um, so one of my last questions that I love to ask all my guests, if you wanted to speak to the adoptees and tell them anything at all, what would it be? Ooh, um, that's a good question. Um, I think 
especially on the journey that I've been on and kind of what I've seen. Um, um, I think my, my advice to, to adoptees is to ask. I think that's the one thing that I didn't do for years because I didn't think I could. I didn't think I could ask questions. I didn't think I could start asking or, you know, people about my different. I, I think I just kept it to myself because I think we feel, there's my end, we have an obligation to the people that we love to make sure that their lives are easy and that their lives are, are, you know, that it was worth it. It was worth adopting us. It was worth everything. But we don't do that for ourselves. And I think that's mm. the thing that I had to learn. You know, later in life, I, I, I joke a lot with people that I'm like 30 years old and I, and I feel so behind in this whole process. Like, I just wish that I, you know, I watch those videos of you know, those people are like, I'm 13, I'm going to find my other I could have been that child, but you're I'm, not I, behind your writing I schedule. I promise you. <laughs> no, I, 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 I've had learned that, you know, but I think those are the things that um, I think a lot of adopters are feeling around that hopelessness because, you know, we, we use those words to be grateful. We're supposed to, you know, be happy. We're like, why aren't you happy? You have the life, you know, but I think it, it's so important to know that you also have your rights and your feelings. You have a right to be able to um, do something with those feelings, whether it be getting therapy, whether it's starting to ask, you know, where did I come from? You know, whether it means, you know, having to sneak into your thoughts and look at the information and go, what does this mean on the first ticket or something like that? I think you deserve to be able to, to know your story and then to embrace it after that. Absolutely. I think, like I said, it, it can be scary, but you find that support system, you find those people to share what you feel you need to share. I mean, I know that in a point where in my life, just recently, I, I had to write a letter to my parents on my feelings, like about everything, but how, you know, if you're going to have to write a book about me, that you have to realize that this is what happened. This is part of the journey of, of being, adopted, being adopted. It's not always a happy, happy uh, you know, life for these people. They're going to feel things, they're going to question, you know, hey, I, don't understand why when I you did this it made me feel this but I wanted you know you to know that that's what I felt and even though my parents didn't uh, acknowledge in the way that I wanted to about how those things uh, impacted me you know it, it's something that I was able to tell my truth and I was able to share my my um, feelings to allow myself to move forward I think that's the last thing I want people to feel that they can't move forward I'm stuck ingesting I'm an adoptee that's all about more to you than just that. Well, I, I love that. And so I think the one thing that I, that stood out the most for me was to ask, don't be afraid to ask. Please don't be afraid to ask the questions. You're, you deserve to know. So please don't be afraid to ask. Let the people know how they can find you on <laughs> IG and on YouTube. Awesome. So yeah, so my handle for both my Instagram and my Utah, my YouTube, sorry, um, are is um, adopting apostate. The adopt. Yeah, sorry, I was my partner. The adopting apostate. I'm always on it, but I don't look at my own handle. The adopting apostate is my handle for both my YouTube and for um, my Instagram. And I will definitely drop her link when we drop this episode for sure so that you can follow her. Thank you so much for coming and telling your story. I appreciate it. You are my first 
Yeah, I believe you're my first international adoptee. Yeah, I love that. So hopefully we'll have uh, more to speak to after this. And um, you're very welcome. And until next week, bye, family. Bye.